we can choose unilaterally to end a war that other people are waging against us because we decided it went on too long and that that won't have any consequences is really, I, I think, an unrealistic, an unrealistic way to proceed. It sent a, a, a general signal of, of uh, bad thinking, weakness, and irresolution. Hello, I'm Jonathan Tobin, Editor-in-Chief of the Jewish News Syndicate, JNS.org, and you're listening to Top Story, a weekly podcast where I analyze the most important stories happening in Jewish news around the world. Each week, I will break down politics, foreign policy, and culture to provide insights into what is going on behind the headlines. Hello, and welcome to Top Story. The top story this week is the aftermath of the anniversary of the January 6th Capitol riot. One year ago, the spectacle of a mob of protesters storming the U.S. Capitol on the day when Congress had assembled to ritually certify the vote of the Electoral College shocked the nation. It was a disgrace, and now former President Donald Trump, who, though he hadn't called for any violence or to tell anyone to break into the Capitol, had helped rile up the crowd at a Stop the Steal rally from which the mob broke away, deserves blame for that and for not speaking out soon enough to oppose what happened. But as bad as the riot was, and it was awful, the decision of Democrats in the following days to inflate it into an insurrection or a coup and the moral equivalent or worse than the Confederates firing on Fort Sumter or the 9-11 terrorist attacks turned it into yet another point of contention in our already bifurcated political culture. Over the past year, it has become clear that rather than seek, as President Joe Biden promised at his inauguration, to heal the wounds inflicted during a bitterly contested election, he and his party are determined to pour salt on them and attempt to make the so-called insurrection into a permanent feature of American politics. And the commemoration of the disgraceful events that took place in Washington on the anniversary was a predictably partisan show. In one way, that makes sense for President Biden to try to shift the public's focus back onto Trump, because, given his disastrous performance in office on both domestic and foreign issues in his first year, it's the only way he can remind us of why he was elected. But the problems with this approach are clear. Democrats aren't just trying to keep running against Trump with their obsessive focus on January 6th and their willingness to try, despite no real evidence for the claim that the riot was a plot against America, orchestrated by the former president and his supporters. In doing so, and using the partisan House January 6th committee, they want to convince us that all those who ask questions about the 2020 results or wanted Trump to win are somehow responsible for what happened. Rather than defending democracy, as they claim, they are essentially trying to silence opposition at a time when their own incompetence is the main issue. Throughout the year, we've been told that every act of resistance, to use a phrase that Democrats use to describe their own opposition to Trump, to Biden, or even to woke policies like the imposition of critical race theory indoctrination in the schools, as evidence of insurrectionist activity, and sadly enough to provoke the highly politicized Department of Justice under Attorney General Merrick Garland to threaten to investigate parents who spoke out against what was happening. Worse. They are trying to use the threat of insurrection to justify their own sweeping attempt to federalize all elections and sweep away the guardrails that ensure voter integrity, including voter ID laws that, contrary to their assertions, don't suppress the vote in the name of voting rights. They even have the chutzpah to claim that the failure to pass their proposals will mean that democracy will be imperiled. This is gaslighting, not a defense of democracy. While conspiracy theories about the election are wrong, these are, after all, the same people who spent Trump's four years in office floating their own discredited conspiracy theories about Russian collusion in 2016 and were glad when big tech social media companies and mainstream press outlets suppressed legitimate news stories about Biden family corruption. They also cheered when mobs rioted and looted the previous summer during the mostly peaceful Black Lives Matter riots that followed demonstrations that caused far more loss of life and destruction of private property, as well as assaults on government buildings, instances that are more easily described as domestic terrorism than the admittedly illegal acts that occurred at the Capitol on January 6th. 
and combined with their desire to end the Senate filibuster, a position they fiercely opposed as nothing short of tyranny when they were in the minority, what they are attempting is an attempt to overturn constitutional norms which, as America's founding fathers intended, were to act as a break on the efforts of marginal majorities to change the system for their own partisan advantage. You don't have to like Donald Trump or disagree with the notion that the Capitol riot was awful to understand that the bill of goods that were being sold about January 6th and democracy are disingenuous partisan talking points, not patriotism. Nor do you have to be a Trump supporter to understand that what many mainstream Jewish groups, like the Anti-Defamation League, the Jewish Council for Public Affairs, and the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism, have done in essentially endorsing the Democrats' narrative about insurrection, is not merely a matter of supposedly nonpartisan groups acting like partisans. It's also an example of how Jewish groups prioritize the interests of partisan allies. Let's be honest. None of these groups have been working hard to pressure the Biden administration to cease its policy of appeasement of Iran and its nuclear ambitions, something that is a threat to the entire West and the Middle East, but also an existential threat to Israel. Yet they appear willing to go to the mat to lobby on behalf of the Democrats' bogus attempt to portray their voting legislation as a defense of democracy or opposition to white supremacy and insurrection. It's not only a disgrace, it's evidence that they might as well drop the pretense that they are defending Jewish interests. Next, it's time to ask why the fight against anti-Semitism is being mixed up with partisanship. At a time when anti-Semitism is on the rise around the globe, the Office of the U.S. State Department's Special Envoy for Combating and Monitoring Anti-Semitism ought to be filled. Indeed, the Biden administration seemed to signal its interest in the subject when it decided to upgrade the post by expanding the office's staff and conferring, conferring the title of ambassador on the envoy. Biden also named someone that was considered eminently qualified for the job, an Emory University historian Deborah Lipstadt, a widely respected expert on the Holocaust. But Lipstadt's nomination is being held up by Republican senators who are determined to play hardball in an evenly divided Senate over every confirmation, and she is no exception. In Lipstadt's case, the obstacle is Senator James Risch, Republican from Idaho and the ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, who has not consented to scheduling a confirmation hearing. And so, like a great many other nominees, it will remain that way until the Democrats manage to persuade the GOP caucus to give in by making some concession on another issue. The justification for the hold stems from a tweet by Lipstadt about a Republican Senator Ron Johnson, in which she responded to his claim that senators would have been more afraid during the Capitol riot if the demonstrators had been affiliated with the Black Lives Matter movement or Antifa rather than being Trump supporters. For this, Lipstadt, who is known for her sharp tongue and strong opinions, accused him of being an advocate of white supremacy and nationalism. Not surprisingly, Johnson took it personally, and fellow members of the GOP caucus aren't going to relent absent an apology by Lipstadt. This is frustrating for her and the organized Jewish community, which wants the post filled. It's also unproductive since the Republicans, who are uniformly supportive of Israel, back the mission of the anti-Semitism envoy. But it's no good pretending that politics can be separated from the business of fighting anti-Semitism in this environment. Lipstadt deserves credit for her willingness to acknowledge, as some on the Jewish left and in the Democratic parties sometimes have trouble understanding, that Jew hatred is present on both the left and the right. As such, she is probably as good a choice as can be imagined from a Biden administration that has unfortunately proved that it is in thrall to its leftist activist wing. Since Lipstadt has in the past called out Omar for her outrageous statements, theoretically that should be enough to convince Republicans that she ought to be allowed to serve. Similarly, she disagreed with those who have made inappropriate analogies between the plight of illegal immigrants in the United States and that of Jews during the Holocaust. Still, it has not escaped the Republicans that Lipstadt did not earn her nomination by her estimable work as a scholar or even the celebrity that she earned by being the subject of a film, Denial, starring Rachel Weisz, 
for her pivotal role in a case in which Holocaust denier David Irving was defeated in a British court. Lipstadt may have deserved the post, but no one should be under any illusion that the decision didn't have a lot to do with her willingness to play the partisan in 2020 by endorsing a shameful ad from the Jewish Democratic Council of America that likened the Trump administration to the rise of Nazi Germany. She followed that up by co-authoring an op-ed in the Washington Post in which she compared those who raised questions about the outcome of the 2020 presidential election to Holocaust deniers. In both cases, she crossed the same line that she had previously drawn between the Holocaust and partisan issue advocacy. Whether she did so because she genuinely believes that those who disagree with her about Trump are either Nazis or their enablers, or had her eye on the post that she later claimed she had to be persuaded to accept, is irrelevant. Having taken those stands, she put herself in the same boat as any other Democrat with a record of partisanship who had to then try and persuade angry Republicans that she would carry out her duties in a fair-minded manner. Nor is this any different from the way Trump appointees were made to jump through hoops about quotes or tweets that got them in hot water with Democrats. As much as the anti-Semitism envoy should be filled right away, the problem is not so much how partisanship has made the Senate a dysfunctional institution, though that certainly is true. Rather, it's the way people who ought to have known better were willing to sanction inappropriate Holocaust analogies or to otherwise link the battle against anti-Semitism to political sparring. If Americans are to keep politics out of the discussion about anti-Semitism and therefore enable both the Jewish community and the government to condemn it, whether it comes from the right or the left, then those who are looked to as the gold standard on the issue, like Lipstadt, must not allow themselves to play these sort of partisan games. Next, let's turn to culture and the question of whether the Harry Potter books are anti-Semitic. Jon Stewart tells us he was just kidding. The former star of Comedy Central's The Daily Show, who is Jewish, engaged in a riff on his The Problem with Jon Stewart podcast, in which he claimed that some characters in the Harry Potter series of novels and films were anti-Semitic stereotypes of Jews come to life. That generated a discussion that trended on Twitter. That, in turn, spawned more discussions about anti-Semitic imagery, in addition to online comments about Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling being an anti-Semite. Now, Stewart is now disavowing any responsibility for the discussion. In a subsequent podcast, he said his previous remarks were just a joke and that no reasonable person would have taken them as a serious accusation of anti-Semitism. He then went on to state that Rowling was not an anti-Semite and should in no way feel obligated to respond to him, though, of course, she had ignored him all along. While profanely blasting Newsweek for running an item about his podcast that he claimed took his remarks out of context, though they were, in fact, accurately reported. That Stewart is now trying to put out the fire he started is a good thing, even though his protestations about being innocent of any intent to smear Rowling are disingenuous. The whole point of Stewart's brand of humor has always been to make political and social statements cloaked in satire. Though he has often pretended to be nonpartisan and even non-ideological, his goal was always to earn laughs by skewering people, parties, and ideas he despised. His monologues and routines were funny. However, the object wasn't merely humor, since he rarely used it to attack liberals or any cause he backed. To the contrary, the show became under his leadership and continues to this day under his successor, Trevor Noah, a daily in-kind contribution to the Democratic Party, as well as a place where unfair criticism of Israel can be heard. So when he says he was just kidding about Rowling deciding to depict Jews as the creepy goblins who are the bankers in their fictional world, he's not being entirely honest. The point of this discussion was to make it appear as if the world of wizards that untold millions of children of all ages have enjoyed since the novels first appeared was in some way complicit in perpetuating unflattering ideas about Jews. The reason why it is open season on Rowling is not exactly a mystery. She has essentially been cancelled, or as cancelled as a billionaire can be, for offending current woke orthodoxy about transgender nomenclature. 
The controversy shows how easily the discussion of Jew hatred can be detached from the intent of those using phrases or images, as well as from any informed understanding of their origin. Stewart is right that short-statured creatures with exaggerated features like big noses is a staple of anti-Semitic propaganda, such as the cartoons and the Nazi propaganda outlet Der Sturmer and other such rags. Part of the reason why small and deformed creatures are connected to anti-Semitism is because of the elf-like Nibelungen in Richard Wagner's epic four-part opera Ring of the Nibelungen. Wagner was a notorious anti-Semite, so it was natural for many to assume that the two Nibelungen characters in the operas, who are both evil, were stand-ins for Jews, though the Nibelungen as a whole are victims rather than all villains. Yet Wagner was merely drawing from a medieval poem that dated back to the 12th century, which itself stems from pagan tales that were, in one form or another, shared by both the ancient Germanic as well as Norse peoples. So whatever Wagner might have meant, to claim that all such fictional creatures are inherently anti-Semitic is a stretch. Indeed, goblins or elves or other small-statured beings, with or without magical powers of some connection to deities or the underworld, have been part of the lore of many different cultures, including some that had no knowledge or connection with Jews. Which means that it is not only possible to enjoy Harry Potter without thinking of anti-Semitism, it is also probably sensible to do so. Jews are, after all, actual humans, not goblins. The notion that any such mythical race instead are Jews is irresistible to some, but still nonsense. And we've heard similar ridiculous claims about characters in Star Wars and Star Trek. What any such conversation usually misses is that by seeking to tag such fantasies as a product of hate, we are usually ignoring actual anti-Semitism, both the kind that uses ugly caricatures of Jews and that demonizes them in other ways. For example, leftist Jewish cartoonist Eli Valley deliberately employs traditional Der Sturmer-style caricatures of Jews in his panels, in which he accuses Israel of blood libels and depicts its supporters in much the same way that the Nazis sought to delegitimize the Jewish people in Zionism. On the other hand, it is no small irony, given Stuart's pose as an arbiter of what is and isn't anti-Semitic, that Ilhan Omar, one of the nation's most prominent anti-Semites, was largely normalized on The Daily Show, with multiple fawning interviews, as well as on the CBS late-night comedy show hosted by Stephen Colbert, who got his start in the cast of Stewart's show. It's also an interesting coincidence that in the same week that Stewart's comments about Rowling went viral, Emma Watson, the character, the actress that portrayed a Potter heroine, Hermione Granger in the films, allowed her Instagram account to be used to promote the Free Palestine slogan that is synonymous with the extinction of the one Jewish state on the planet. That's a reminder that at a time when the rising tide of anti-Semitism is spreading around the globe, rooted in hatred of Israel, talking about the goblins in Harry Potter isn't merely a waste of time. It's a way of ignoring the fact that the Jew haters aren't always the ones who create fantasies with small creatures. Sometimes it's the fashionable and beautiful people following hateful woke trends that demonize the real living Jewish people that we should be worried about. Every age has its own narrative myth about those who acquire great wealth. In the 21st century, the prevailing story is that of the nerd who parlays technological genius into billions. The big tech oligarchs who make their way onto the Forbes billionaire list are envied and feared. But with a few conspicuous exceptions, their cool lifestyles, liberal politics, and donations to fashionable and politically correct charities generally protect them from the worst abuse that pop culture can inflict on the famous. The nerd billionaires may sometimes be mocked, but the chattering classes still laud them for funding the causes they support. That was not the case with Sheldon Adelson. The casino magnate who died one year ago this week at the age of 87 was a throwback to the Horatio Alger rags-to-riches tales of the 19th century. But he will be remembered primarily, not so much for the way he made his money, but the way he gave it away. 
At the time, his death was greeted with a torrent of abuse from liberals in both the United States and Israel that would otherwise been considered appropriate for the passing of a controversial politician. Along with his wife, Dr. Miriam Adelson, he gave more to Jewish causes than any other philanthropist in the first decades of the century. But rather than being chiefly remembered for this, media reactions to his death paid more attention to the money he spent on aiding the campaigns of Republican candidates whom he saw as friends of Israel. He used the access he acquired with his wealth to lobby not just Congress but presidents and prime ministers with an unabashed zeal for bending them to his will on issues related to Israel's security. While he lavished donations on a host of medical institutions, he was most interested in funding Jewish life in Israel. Adelson was a traditional Zionist who believed in Jewish rights and wanted them to be respected by the United States. Vilified by an Israeli media establishment that leaned as hard to the left as its American counterparts, he responded by founding a free newspaper, Israel Hayom, that not only broke the liberal monopoly in that field, but became the most widely read in the country. In that same spirit, he was an early supporter of JNS. For this, he was hated by many. While his dedication to Jewish projects, like the Birthright Israel program that has sent hundreds of thousands of young American Jews on free trips to Israel, was unmatched by more centrist donors, long before his death, he had become the symbol of conservative political donors who were determined to get it their way. But lost amid the politics is something more basic. Adelson clearly saw himself as someone placed in a position granted by his good fortune in business to do something other than fitting in and playing along. In addition to embodying the entrepreneurial spirit, Adelson also possessed the mindset of American Jews whose ethnic religious identity revolved around the memory of the Holocaust and support for Israel. Indeed, he was fond of recalling that on the first, his first trip to Israel, something that had not occurred until after he had become wealthy, but it was Adelson's 1991 marriage to his second wife Miriam, an Israeli physician, that focused him on Zionist activism and politics. From that point on, the Jewish state would become a consuming interest into which he would not merely pour wealth, but do so in a manner that would substantially alter the course of both Israeli and American politics. The list of Israeli and Jewish institutions and philanthropic causes to which he contributed is long. But Adelson wasn't content to merely give to charities. An opponent of American pressure on the Jewish state to make concessions its people believed were dangerous to its security, he became one of the leading donors to Republican candidates as the GOP completed its transformation into a lockstep pro-Israel party. Just as Adelson's contributions to philanthropic causes were on an epic scale with him giving hundreds of millions to various institutions, his involvement in politics was similarly grand. His donations to pro-Israel candidates and conservative Republicans were both generous and strategic. Adelson believed in a direct approach to politics. He backed those he considered faithful friends to the cause he cared about and would cut off those who didn't. It was his willingness to back Donald Trump's campaign in 2016 when most major Republican donors wanted no part of him after he secured the GOP nomination that proved especially fateful. Adelson spent hundreds of millions on various candidates over the years, but no donation was more significant than his backing for Trump. One year after his death, it's worthwhile remembering Adelson's example not just because of what he did, but because it points towards the need for other Jews with the means to follow in his footsteps with respect to embracing their identity and unabashedly pursuing the interests of their people in the Jewish state. More than any other member of his generation, Sheldon Adelson was true to the obligations that Judaism places on both the uses of wealth and on the requirement for solidarity with other Jews. He wasn't one of the cool billionaires, but his efforts still earned him an honored place along some of the most honored leaders in the annals of Jewish history. Now let's turn to our interview of the week. Twenty years ago, in the aftermath of 9-11, Americans woke up to the reality of a world inhabited 
by Islamist terrorists who wanted to kill them. But two decades later, and after the sobering experience provided by inconclusive and ultimately unsuccessful wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, if there is anything that both parties seem to agree on these days, it is their desire to avoid foreign entanglements and especially violent conflicts in which America never seems interested in achieving victory. But the problem with foreign policy is that as much as Americans would like it to, the challenges don't go away. Even withdrawals that are inherently popular, like that from Afghanistan, can go so badly as to remind the country why they got into the conflict in the first place. Even as Americans obsess over a failing economy and are divided by partisan narratives, the question remains, what are the chief threats to the nation's security? Is it climate change, as the Biden administration and many of its allies insist, or should Americans also be focused on the consequences of the ongoing administration effort to return to a policy of appeasement of Iran and its nuclear ambitions? Or is the real peril facing the country a budding conflict with a rising communist power in China, which is challenging the U.S. on both the economic and military fronts? What does American defeat in Afghanistan at the hands of the Taliban portend for the future of Islamist terror groups? And will the Biden administration follow the example of past Democratic presidents and head down the rabbit hole of trying to entice the Palestinians into accepting a two-state solution that they don't want, and in pressuring Israel to make dangerous concessions? To discuss these issues, we're fortunate to have with us today someone who is not only a scholar with vast knowledge of foreign affairs in the Middle East, but also with experience in government. Douglas J. Fife is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, where he works on a range of foreign and defense issues, as well as writing and lecturing. He worked as a staffer to the legendary Senator Henry Scoop Jackson, then served in the National Security Council and the Department of Defense in the Reagan administration. He later served in the George W. Bush administration as Undersecretary of Defense for Policy from July 2001 to August 2005. He is the author of War and Decision, a memoir of his work on the Pentagon during the War on Terrorism. His writings on foreign and defense affairs have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, the Washington Post, Commentary, New Republic, as well as JNS. Doug Fife, welcome to Top Story. It's very good to be with you, Jonathan. Thank you. Thanks so much for being with us today. I want to start by asking you, what's your assessment of the negotiations that are going on right now between the Biden administration and Iran? The administration came into office determined to revive Barack Obama's weak nuclear deal, but to their surprise, they've discovered that Iran not only won't strengthen that agreement to actually ensure they won't get nuclear weapons, but are determined to force Biden's team of Obama alumni to agree to an even weaker version. Do you think the U.S. will stand its ground on the nuclear threat, or are we heading back towards a pact that will essentially ensure that Iran becomes, at the very least, a nuclear threshold state? I think that the, the news reports that have come out in just in the last few hours have suggested that uh, the Iranians are actually interested in concluding a deal. They've been putting out some, some uh, signals in favor of of the negotiations, which have raised some expectations that they might conclude a deal with the Biden team. I, I am personally not uh, an enthusiast for, for these negotiations. I think that the, the Iranians are committed to their nuclear program and are negotiating in such a way that they uh, they want to preserve their option to have a nuclear weapon. And they they saw that the Obama administration was weak in its negotiations. They think that the Biden team apparently is a continuation of that. And I think they may be right. Yeah, I, I think it's clear that Biden's team has learned little from the mistakes they made while serving Obama. You know, as a member of the Bush administration, which is both at the time and later much criticized for what people think or assume were its mistakes, what do you see as being behind this failure by the current administration to learn the same, learn any lessons from one of the past? Well, I think that in in the case of the of the Biden team, uh, many of the people who are 
doing the negotiations, I think, are just trying to vindicate the work that they had done in the in the Obama years. Um, I don't see a sign that President Biden himself is as uh, strategically or ideologically committed to the Iran deal uh, in the same way that President Obama was. Uh, but I think that that what you have is a instead of a strategic or an ideological commitment, as was the case in the Biden in the Obama administration, I think what you have with President Biden is just the political commitment because the Trump administration got out of the deal. Biden said, we're going to get back in. And uh, I think it was a part of a of a grand scheme in the Obama years where I think President Obama was really committed to the idea of redoing American Middle East policy based on a, a kind of a new partnership with Iran. I don't see that any indication that President Obama has that same kind of big picture ideological commitment to the Iran deal. But as I said, I think he's he got stuck in the negotiations and he has some enthusiasts on his uh, on his team that want to basically vindicate the work they did uh, previously. Yeah, turning um, slightly north uh, of that, uh, during your stint at the Pentagon, the war in Afghanistan began. Can you give us your thoughts on the disaster that unfolded last summer with the collapse of the Afghan government and the victory of the Taliban after Biden's precipitate withdrawal? Well, I think that a lot of the commentary about the... uh, the very poorly executed withdrawal from uh, of last summer has focused on the incompetence of of the of the actual mechanism for withdrawal i don't think that's the main problem i think that was a very serious problem but the main problem was the decision by the president to withdraw which I know, according to polls, was very popular throughout the United States, but I think it was it was misguided. The it was motivated by the idea about ending endless wars, and this was an idea that Trump endorsed, mm-hmm. and yeah. this was an idea that Biden endorsed. As I and said, I this think, seems to be a consensus. Yeah, that, that's right, and and I think that that uh, th- this the idea that that we can choose unilaterally to end a war that other people are waging against us because we decided it went on too long and that that won't have any consequences is really i i think an unrealistic an unrealistic way to proceed the the war on terror was a was was not a war that we started um as I like to point out, on, on 9-11, 9-11 was not the beginning of the war. It was the, it was the beginning of the recognition on the part of many Americans that we were at war. And there, there are people who considered themselves at war with us, and that's why the 9-11 occur, attack occurred. And it was clear that this was a different kind of war because we were fighting non-state actors and we were not going to have a clear-cut uh, you know, signing ceremony end to the war. And uh, we were continuing to fight that war in Afghanistan. And, and then the Trump administration and then the Biden administration used this rhetoric of the need to end endless wars and decided that we were going to unilaterally pull out of the war. And our, uh, you know, our enemies didn't uh, didn't agree that the war was over mm-hmm. and so sure. we pu- we pulled out and they've continued to uh to do their thing and and that's why i think it's it's it was such a disaster and i mean i i do think that it's important to study why the actual mechanics of the withdrawal were were screwed up and that's important but it's not as important as the broader uh strategic point that we, we don't have it within our power to unilaterally end the war. 
we didn't unilaterally start the war. And right. the, our enemy has uh, something to say about both the beginning and the end. Yeah. What do you see as the main consequences of that disaster for both the Middle East, um, you know, the Arab states and Israel, as well as U.S. foreign policy? I think that the that the picture that emerged from that disaster is is a picture of an administration that was eager to withdraw from the fight, was weak in its general willingness to uh, defend and persist in defending uh, American interests and the interests of our partners. Uh, it sent a, a, a general signal of, of uh, bad thinking, weakness, and irresolution. Now, I think that that will m motivate both the Chinese and the Russians to want to see what advantages they can gain from an American administration that appears weak and confused and, and unwilling to use military power and eager to withdraw to an isolationist policy. We're seeing a test of that now from Putin. I, th I think we're, we, we've seen some tests of it over the last year from um, Xi Jinping and the way he's turned up military pressure on Hong Kong and Taiwan. And, um, and so I think we're inviting tests. And, and then these are dangerous tests. Yeah, um, we don't know. These are things with unforeseen consequences. Um, as someone who is closely associated with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, who has been, as much as anyone else, uh, been subjected to a lot of harsh criticism for the criticism for the decisions that went into the starts of those conflicts, I'm sure you understand that the conventional wisdom today is that the failures there have created a situation in which there is little popular support for an assertive foreign policy in the Middle East or for involvement in conflicts, whether against terror regimes or a rogue regime like Iran. Do you think that's fair? And how can any administration um, now or in the future revive support for a strong foreign policy absent some new disaster like, God forbid, another 9-11? I mean, is there any other option other than waiting for Americans to wake up? Well, I, I think that there is fairness in the, in the criticism that the, the fact that the Iraq war in particular didn't go well. Mm -hmm. and was a lot longer and uh, and bloodier and not as well focused as it should have been and as people expected it to be, that has enormous consequences. And I think that the, uh, I think that, that President Obama's elections and for that matter, President Trump's election were in part a, a, reaction by the public to the unhappiness that was uh, was felt uh, about the, in particular, the Iraq war. And so, you know, when you're not, <clears throat> when you don't do a war well and when it's not successful, there are consequences. And the consequences is, you know, are, are, the consequences are that you get the, the kind of reaction that we've gotten. And it's, uh, I think it's been hurting the country. And you're quite right that uh, at the moment you have a lot of political support for the kind of weak rhetoric and, and policies that we saw both in the Trump administration and in the Biden administration, where there's this remarkable um, continuity on uh, isolationist policies. And, um, and I think that, that, uh, you're right. As long as we have this this broad-based support for weak policies, we're going to be inviting challenges. At some point, I think we're going to have to rise to the challenge, and that could change the political picture in the United States, but it could be a very dangerous circumstance. Yeah, it's only terrible things that will you know, create a sea change in opinion about foreign policy, it seems to me. And I think that's it's actually sort of a trend, you know, that in American history, Americans always like to forget about the rest of the world, but the rest of the world doesn't forget about them. Um, switching to um, 
another part of the Middle East. Given that Biden is eager to walk back the stands of the Trump administration on anything, uh, whether it concerns Iran or support for Israel, but is also wary of expending political capital for no reason, since the Palestinians clearly are uninterested in peace, where do you see the Biden administration heading on, on that front with its Middle East policies? I think that the we may actually have gotten to the uh, to the point where with the handful of a few um, a few really intense uh, proponents of of Arab Israeli peace negotiations and um, and I think these are people who are in in some ways vestiges of of, of a long history of American support mm. for that for that kind of diplomacy. I think we've gotten to the point where there is a general recognition that until the something is done to improve the quality of Palestinian leadership, the prospects for any kind of constructive result from an American diplomatic initiative on the Arab-Israeli conflict, on the Palestinian issue, the prospects are very dim. And and so I think that your question was correct when you highlighted the reluctance of the Biden administration to invest political capital in something that it's it, it knows is almost inevitably going to produce nothing but loss. And um, <clears throat> and so I don't think I, I don't think that the administration has so far has shown any serious inclination to make a big diplomatic investment. What they have done is they've revived U.S. aid to the Palestinians so that if somebody says that the lack of diplomacy shows an indifference to the Palestinians, the administration could say, we're not indifferent, we're throwing money at them. But the, um, I don't think that anybody in the administration in, in, uh, in the most senior levels believes that if they, uh, if they revive intense peace diplomacy, they're going to they're gonna have anything good to show for it. At the moment, it, that's, a pretty, uh, that's a, a pretty dead issue. Yeah, that's true. I don't see, you know, Anthony Blinken trying, you know, uh, doing the same thing as uh, Kerry and trying to revive peace talks that will, will fail. But they are sort of nibbling away at the edges um, with policy in Jerusalem, with their interest in reopening a, a, a consulate to the Palestinians in Jerusalem, even though they're not moving the embassy back to Tel Aviv. Um do you see that and sort of these funding issues as having the the potential to uh, start a uh, start a, a you know a dispute that they can't really control? I think what the administration is doing is unconstructive. I, I mm -hmm. think that it is it is out of ideas. They I think they they would be happy to revive peace diplomacy, but they do recognize, as I said, that. It's not it's not going to go anywhere, given the nature of the Palestinian leadership right now. And and so what they're trying to do is be able to answer the the standard kind of pressure that comes on American officials when they have meetings around the world. And in some places, people ask them, well, what are you doing to resolve the Israel-Palestinian matter? So they want to have some talking points. And so they say, well, we we're doing this and we're doing that and we're providing money and we're supporting this program and, and the like. I think what they're doing, though, is unconstructive because if someone were actually in the administration interested in doing something that increases the possibility of some kind of diplomatic progress toward peace, we would have a strategy for changing the Palestinian political and economic landscape mm -hmm. so that you could get new and better leadership. And the way to do that was opened up by the Abraham Accords. And if the administration were really smart, it would be working with the UAE and the Bahrainis and the Saudis and the Egyptians and finding out what could they do that we could support working 
together with them and with Israel, to try to promote a new and better Palestinian leadership that's actually interested in improving the quality of life for the Palestinians um, and not uh, perpetuating the conflict with Israel. Yeah, uh, I think that's true, and uh, they don't seem to be that interested in in, in doing that. Um, speaking of conflict, the one area where conflict seems to be a, a real possibility is between the United States and Israel over Iran. Um, obviously, for Israel, Iran and its nuclear ambitions is an existential issue. It's an issue on which there is complete consensus across the political spectrum, but clearly, that's not um, the perspective of the Biden administration. And if, as you said earlier, there's about to be a new agreement, which is likely, um, you know, at, at best, it would be as weak as the 2015 agreement, uh, but likely weaker, um, that creates the possibility of some real conflict with Israel. It's because, you know, Israel is going to act in some ways when one anticipates Israel will act in some ways to deal with Iran's ambitions that the um, that Washington isn't going to like. I mean, where does that head? That may be. I, I when you say Washington, I, I think there are there are various views, and seem to be even within the administration various views on the on the Iran problem, and. I don't think that everybody in the administration is an enthusiast for this, uh, for these negotiations. And it's possible that there are people who understand the reality of what you said, which is that the Israelis, if they really believe that the Iranians are moving quickly to the, uh, to the red line mm -hmm. on nuclear weapons, that the Israelis are going to take action. And, the, and various Israeli officials in, in recent months have been speaking with amazing bluntness mm -hmm. um, about a military threat to Iran. And I think that everybody should take that seriously. I, I think the Israelis mean it. Yeah. And, uh, and you're right that there are some people in the administration who would oppose that strongly. But I imagine that there are probably some people in the administration that would 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 be understanding um and uh and i i even wonder whether there i mean i one would hope that there are people in the administration who are talking in a serious fashion to the israelis to make sure that if diplomacy fails the israelis and the americans together can mm. somehow cooperate on what needs to be done militarily and um, and so I think that that th this is something that that uh, the Iranians should worry about. And I think part of the reason that the Americans, I would hope, would be working with the Israelis on contingencies is because if even the people who really believe that diplomacy has a chance of solving this problem with the Iranians, uh, should understand that if the, our diplomacy, the U.S. diplomacy, is not backed by some kind of serious military threat, the diplomatic prospects are zero. Mm -hmm. And um, so anyway, I think that, that you're quite right to call attention to the Israeli threat. I'm not sure that it's only an Israeli threat. One would hope that the threat would be from Israel and the United States in some kind of cooperation. And um, and with the, and with the cooperation of uh, Israel's uh, new diplomatic partners in the Arab world as well, who are well, as much, if not more, afraid of Iran than Israel is. Yeah, I'm not. I, I don't know how much cooperation you'd have with them, but you would certainly, I think, have a cheering section. <laughs> and um, I think that the 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 Gulf Arabs tend to be rather timid. Uh, from a security point of view. And uh, I think they're very happy when the Israelis are tough, but I'm not sure that they necessarily want to um, actively cooperate in, a, you know, in an Israeli military action against Iran. Yeah, yeah, that's true. 
Um, Doug, you're someone with some historical perspective after getting your start in public policy as far back as the 1970s, but let's restrict our view to the last 20 years. Um, While the mainstream press has adopted narratives that tend to demonize Republican presidents and lionize Democrats, how do you think history will ultimately treat the last uh, three administrations under Bush, Obama, and Trump when it comes to foreign policy? Oh, it's a, that's a complex. <laughs> that's a complex picture, and uh, I, I think that I think I would go back to the to the comment that I made earlier, which is I think that the Bush administration did a lot of things that were necessary to do, but it didn't it didn't do them that successfully. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, my basic view on the Iraq War, for example, is I think the president made the right decision to oust the Saddam Hussein regime based on what he knew and, and, uh, at the time. But the war wasn't, wasn't executed as it should have been. And I think that we, I think we messed up the political transition in Iraq and we had a, a, too prolonged a U.S.-led occupation and we made other errors. And the consequence of those errors was to create a backlash. And we're still living with the backlash. And in the same way that a lot of American policy throughout the 70s and 80s was damaged by the no more Vietnam's mantra, uh, I think we have the, you know, no more George W. Bush, no more wars in the Middle East, no more war on terror kind of mantras that we're now living with and they're uh, and they're signaling to the world a kind of irresolution unwillingness to use military power weakness and uh as i said we're we're seeing consequences of that in the increasing boldness of both uh well i of of china russia and iran Mm -hmm. and um and i worry about that yeah, um, obviously uh, we go through cycles with uh, administrations, and you know that, that's sort of an American thing that we do. Uh, we always think that foreign policy is over, and then we get uh, awake, uh, awakened to uh, to new challenges. Um, and I guess that's uh, where we'll have to leave it in terms of where Biden is going to go with that. Uh, with these challenges. Um, Doug, I want to thank you so much for your insights and perspective. I want to thank you for your time. And we also want to thank our audience. Whether you're listening to us on Spotify or any of the other podcast platforms or watching us on the JNS YouTube channel or on JBS TV, please like and or subscribe to Top Stories. Give us good reviews. Please let us know where you listen and watch the show and what you think about it. And we'll see you next week. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.